You are now tuned in to another episode of What Are You Growing Through? There's no growth gain inside of the comfort zone. So, let's get uncomfortable. Hello and welcome back to another episode of What Are You Growing Through? So, for the first time ever, right? I have two special guests, two amazing women, Brittany and Maggie, who are doing amazing work in our community as they're both serving as advocates and raising awareness to different topics, such as the one that we're going to dive deep into today, reproductive autonomy and our reproductive rights. I enjoy learning more about this particular topic, and I also enjoy learning more about the work that they do. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey. Hello. Hi, Hi, Chris. How are both of you doing today? Doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, Disappointed about the rain today, but I've been enjoying the sun this week. I I agree with the rain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I can't believe that it's already the 5th of May. Right. It feels like it was just March. I don't know what's going on. Time is the biggest social construct. Mm. But I think I've just, yeah, I've felt like a chicken running around with its head cut off. But honestly, in a good way, doing good things, but definitely staying busy. Same. I, I get that 100%, especially today. Something about today was just back to back to back to back. So I get it. Um. So to get into the episode a little bit, I um, typically allow my guests to introduce themselves. So whoever wants to take the floor first, you have it. I can start. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Maggie Royer. I'm the Youth and Prevention Program Manager at Violence Free Minnesota, which is the statewide domestic violence coalition for Minnesota. Um, My role focuses on improving the public health response to domestic violence, and I also run our youth advisory board. And in my free time, I run a literary and arts journal for abuse survivors called Persephone's Daughters. So happy to be here. Happy to have you. I love following Becky's introductions because she always throws in something like, oh, in my free time, I also run an entire literary magazine. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, but I am Brennison Wheeler. You can also call me Brenny. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the Education and Outreach Coordinator at Women's Advocates, among many other things. But Women's Advocates is a nonprofit organization that offers a continuum of safety from domestic violence in St. Paul, Minnesota. So my role there is a lot of different things, but I think most relevant to this episode is that I do webinars. So lots of different webinars on different topics. Before it was trainings and presentations that were, of course, in person, kind of running from one location to another trying to address and hopefully prevent domestic violence where we live, learn, work, and gather. And so that has shifted to being completely online, which has been really great, I think, for our program because we've been able to expand what we offer and talk about so many different topics that is not just domestic violence 101. We get to get into some more more topics related to that and in more depth as well. 
Okay, well, happy to have you here as well. And I just want to start by saying that I love the work you both are doing. It is very um, essential and important to our community, especially under the climate that we've been in at least the last five years, you know. Um, so I appreciate it personally. Um, Thank so, you. No problem. Um, I My first question is in reference to the work you all do. Like what inspired it for you? Um, what got you into that type of work? Sure. Um, I think for me personally, I a lot of people enter this field because of personal experience. And that's the case for me. Um, you know, I experienced an abusive relationship when I was in college and didn't really know what domestic violence was or didn't have a lot of ideas about what sexual violence actually looks like, you know, just thinking that it was physical force and didn't really get the support that I needed. Um, it was a pretty isolating experience. And I actually decided to start volunteering at a domestic violence shelter because I was just looking for a way to give back and support other people who were going through similar experiences. And so, you know, I, I kind of entered the field because of that. And um, I actually started working at Women's Advocates, uh, the same organization that Renison works at. And that was fulfilling to me. Um, and now I feel like working at the coalition and having a statewide reach, I have a greater reach and kind of a greater ability to make change on a broader scale. And that's just something that's um, a big passion of mine, because even though we're in 2021, there's still so much shame and silence around um, domestic violence and abusive relationships. And we're not quite where we need to be at this point. I agree. Yeah, I think the work that Violence Free Minnesota does is so pivotal and they really analyze systemic change. So not just saying, oh, the onus is on like individual people, but it's taking a broader look at what systems exist that are oppressive that continue to create these conditions that allow for social expectations or norms to exist that say it's okay for people to use force, to use power and control in their relationships. And so I think that all of that work comes together really well and it can't be done without that systemic change. So I just thought of that as you're talking, Maggie, but a little bit about how I came to this field. It was honestly kind of on accident. I was a psychology major at the University of Minnesota and I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't really want to go right away. I was kind of tired of academia. <laughs> I wanted to take a little break and experience what I called the real world. And I went on Indeed and just started looking up bunch of different jobs, typing in psychology, bachelors of arts, like, what can I get with this? And I stumbled across women's advocates in this position. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what an education and outreach coordinator does, but this seems cool. I'll submit an application. Didn't think too much of it. Applied to a couple other places as well. 
And through the application process, I actually learned a lot more about my own survivorship as well, too. And I think before that moment, I had known that I had experienced things when I was a child and also when I was in college, but I didn't really identify with being a victim survivor or that just wasn't an identity or a label that I put on myself. So I kind of just viewed it as, you know, I understand these concepts. Like, I don't have to read about them. Like, I know them, (laughs) Um, but I still didn't really fully make that connection or see like what the point in doing that was until I kind of went through that interview process. And I just felt really magnetized to the organization and the work that they were doing and just was so drawn to be a part of it, even though I wasn't really sure (laughs) what it was entirely. And I'm so glad that I did that because I have learned and grown so much through that experience and have learned so much about my own personal experiences and have been able to connect with others on another level that I feel like I maybe wouldn't have been able to in the past or without that experience. So hopefully that answered your question. Oh, it did. And thank you both for sharing. I definitely want to touch on what you said about Indeed um, and typing in and just looking because that is definitely how I found, um, side note about me, found the job that I have currently. I currently work in the intimate partner violence shelter, um, but my job is more so helping them find resources and employment and everything of that such, things that they either lost while because of their situation or just in general, you know? Um, so just a little bit, tidbit about me, but I, I had to comment on that because that was definitely relatable. Um, Indeed was my best friend at some point, um, which is how I got connected with you all's webinar because I work in that shelter. They send like certain type of, you know, resources to us, you know, suggestions that maybe we should be involved in. So yeah, that's how I got connected with you. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Right? So to get into a little bit of the topic of the episode, the words reproductive autonomy, can you tell us a little bit about what that is, what that means, what that looks like? Yeah, I can go first if you want, Maggie. I feel like I kept having you go first, so I'll I'll take a turn. So to me, reproductive autonomy... We kind of borrow the definition of agency in general. So having personal agency is described as having this capacity um, to act in any given environment, the capacity of someone to act independently and make their own free choices. And then we kind of add on to that to make it about reproductive health and saying that this person is able to act independently and make their own free choices regarding their reproductive health and rights. So for me, it's about the feeling and knowing that I have the right to make my own choices as it impacts my reproductive health. So some examples could be of like exercising your reproductive autonomy is being able to know and verbalize what my reproductive boundaries are. Uh, so what I'm comfortable with, what I'm not comfortable with, knowing what my desires and intentions are with my reproductive health and feeling free to express that to the other person that I might be engaging in sex with. Um, And then also being able to have just conversations of what makes you feel safe in a reproductive environment, which I think a lot of people don't realize that they end up in reproductive environments a lot. They just think of it as 
like, oh, this is a sexual environment. But if it is an environment that you could become pregnant as a result of certain actions, then that is like a reproductive environment. So like, what are the things that make that person feel safe? And so I think being able to make those choices, not with the relationship being in jeopardy if that person doesn't appease the other's wishes or things like that. So that's a really long explanation for just saying it's having, um, being able to make free choices about your own reproductive health. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. It's, it's hard to follow that answer. (laughs) Um, I feel like you said it all, but, um, something that you said just reminded me of, you know, reproductive autonomy also looks different in every relationship. Um, everyone deserves the right to reproductive autonomy. Everyone should have it, but not everyone does in every relationship. And, you know, I, when I think about reproductive autonomy, it's, it's what Brennison said is being able to make decisions and choices about your reproductive and sexual health and have those choices be respected. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been in relationships where they were respected and relationships where they weren't. And, um, just being able to feel safe and comfortable and empowered about, um, you know, stating those choices and having conversations um, and compromise um, is just so important. Um, and I'm also thinking just about like social norms and gender norms. And for me, sometimes when I think of reproductive autonomy, um, like being a cisgender woman and kind of this societal expectation that oh, you have to have children Um, or hearing people talk about like, oh, you know, your biological clock is running out. And that's a very weird thing to say to someone and to hear um, because it it, it kind of limits our our choices and who we are as people. And so that's a big part of it for me as well is being able to make a choice about whether or not um, I have children and recognizing that, um, some people who identify as cisgender women uh, don't want to have children, and that is completely okay, and that's that's their right, um, is to make that decision. Yes, I'm glad that you brought up that point, because I think that is a conversation or just that pressure in general that I definitely wouldn't have considered as, like, you know, reproductive autonomy, especially before learning the terminology. Um, but I see it a lot in our community like our like the generation like our parents generation or even our grandparents generation like they'll be kind of pressuring or just pushing or just worrying us about when we are if we want to have children or not like we have to like it's some type of mandated thing that we have to do just because we're a woman you know mm-hmm. um so I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to touch on that because I'm glad you brought it up in that in that setting in this setting anyway Something you said, Chris, kind of sparked something, and you can let me know if I'm jumping ahead, but the kind of opposite of having reproductive autonomy, right, is experiencing reproductive coercion. And I think reproductive coercion is when that question of what do you want Mm -hmm. is like completely eliminated from the equation, right? So like they're completely taking away what you want and what you think is okay. And it's something that is happening to your body. And so I don't know if you think this is the right time to start talking about reproductive coercion, but I just thought of that too, when you were talking about the pressure and, and just kind of 
the societal expectations, particularly for, for cisgender women of, you know, you need to have this many kids by this many time, by this, by this age, by this, um, by this right. age, right. By, and in this many years, this many, like this many years apart. And there's a lot of that. And I think sometimes there's an overemphasis on what, do, what are other people going to think? Or, you know, what are people going to think about you? Or, you know, uh, whatever the case is, and all of it is external and not giving that person agency over what happens to their own bodies. Yes. Uh, it, you did not just jump ahead. You you said what needs to be said. So I, I'm here for it. Um, did you want to say anything, Maggie, or... Yeah, I guess something that you had said, Chris, about like uh, pressure from our parents or grandparents, it just makes me think back to all the times where I would be with my grandparents when I was in elementary school. And, you know, my grandpa would kind of joke and it it was a joke and we knew it was a joke, but he would say things like, "Um, so do you have a boyfriend yet? And I was like six years old, right? I, I didn't have a boyfriend. Like people, I mean, people... Some people were dating in elementary school, but they weren't dating. dating right. if you know. um, but it was just like that idea of, you know, even when you're in middle school or high school, like you already have to start thinking about these things and just that pressure to be with someone else. Um, and not everyone even wants to have a sexual relationship, period. And that's also completely their right. Right. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think statements like that kind of plant the seeds for later on in life. People saying like your value and your worth is contingent on whether or not you're dating someone or the status of whoever you're dating and that you don't get to be an individual person, right? You have to be like an extension of another person, particularly a man. And I I was going to touch on that because I... I at least once every, every at least once every time I go home, like I get asked, like, "Are you dating? Are you seeing anyone? When are you gonna bring someone home?" As long as it's a man, like that whole like all of it is like, why can't I just? First of all, if I want to be single, why can't I just be single? But why are you choosing for me when it happens? You know, so yeah, definitely relatable. I think when we were talking about kind of genders and things like that, I also thought about a really common narrative about sexual assault and reproductive coercion. And I do want to draw like a distinctive line between reproductive coercion and sexual assault or sexual violence really quickly. I would say that in my opinion, and people can definitely disagree, but with my understanding, reproductive coercion is a form of sexual violence very oftentimes, but not every type or every experience of sexual violence is a form of reproductive coercion, right? But there are often a lot of times where those two overlap, but I just want to say like, there's a difference, of course, but I think there's a really common idea by, you know, just public consciousness that they think women are the only victims of sexual assault and that men are the only victims of reproductive coercion. And namely, a lot of people think about like, oh, well, the only form of reproductive coercion I can think of is a woman like 
poking holes in a condom to get herself pregnant and trap a man. And so he can't leave her. And we need to be talking about that because that's not okay. And um, I would say that not only is this thinking really dangerous because we're thinking in that like gender binary, right? Of like man and woman. And we're kind of saying that we're kind of leaving people who are not straight and who are not in the gender binary out of the conversation. And it contributes to this thought that reproductive coercion can't or doesn't happen to people like them, to people who are not straight and people who are not um, within that gender binary. And then by virtue of their identities, they can't or don't experience reproductive coercion, which is definitely untrue. So I think like that narrative is harmful in that way too but I think it's also harmful because of course anyone of any gender can experience can and do experience both sexual assault and reproductive coercion and that that limited definition of what each of those things are can create a lot of shame that we kind of touch on a little bit earlier of like it can be really isolating thinking that you know there must be something wrong with me because I'm not fitting the description that people say are the people who experiences what I'm experiencing. So it must be my fault or I must be like looking at it wrong or whatever the case is, or that they're afraid to tell other people because they won't believe it. Right. They won't believe them or they'll say, Oh, that doesn't happen to men or "Oh, that doesn't happen to people in um, lesbian relationships or whatever the case is. And that that can be really invalidating and like a secondary trauma, right? Like a second trauma to the initial trauma of experiencing sexual assault or reproductive coercion itself. And then it's that going to people that you care about and confining in them and then being told that they don't believe you. That's like (laughs) salt in the wound, of course. Right. And a big fear that prevents people from even having those conversations about their experiences in the first place. Yeah. I think even the term reproductive or reproduction, people just think of, oh, you're referring to cisgender women. Right. Right. And it's like, everybody has a reproductive system. It's not just cisgender women. Um, Yeah, I think that's really important to touch on as well. And even just in general, so many people have not heard of reproductive coercion because it's it's a newer term and that just makes everything even more complicated. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely, which is part of of the reason why I wanted to invite you all to an episode so we can spread the awareness of it um, and make it a known thing. Um, and that that led to my next question. That that, that was well done. <laughs> I was gonna ask about your your opinion, like why is it important to bring awareness to about this particular topic? Yeah, I mean I I think it's important so that people know what reproductive autonomy is and that they have a right to it. But I also think it's important because reproductive coercion is a type of abuse. And yet so many people's conceptions of abuse is uh, with someone hitting you or kicking you or biting you. Um, it's solely physical violence. And, you know, even when you, you see articles about domestic violence, even still today, it's the same dominant image of a woman with a black eye. And if you're someone who is in an unhealthy relationship and, you know, you're reading an article about domestic violence and you see that image, you might think, oh, well, that's not me. That doesn't fit me. Um, And so I think just expanding that narrative of what 
intimate partner abuse can look like is so important because a lot of times if someone, if you don't know that you're experiencing abuse, you're probably not going to seek help and get the support that you need. Um, and like Brennison mentioned with reproductive coercion and sexual violence, so many people who experience reproductive coercion will really struggle with what was that? Like if, if my partner, if we both agreed that the sex would be protected and they were going to use condoms and then during the middle, they just removed the condom without my permission. A lot of people are like, what just happened? Like, what do I call that? And you know, if I heard that happening to someone else, my first thought would be, well, that was a violation of your consent and that was sexual violence. But when you're in that situation, it sometimes feels a lot more nebulous because there's not this, you know, this public knowledge of what reproductive coercion is and what you have a right to in terms of safety and respect in a relationship. I definitely agree that naming something makes it more real, which can be scary. (laughs) But I think it's also another kind of underscores the point for why it's so important for people to know the words reproductive autonomy and reproductive coercion. Again, so it's it's a starting place, right? So if you don't have a name for what's going on. It's like, this is probably, I don't know if this is going to be a good analogy or not, but uh, you know, when you like have a song stuck in your head and you have no idea what the name is and it's like bothering you because you don't know what it is. What is that song? And it's kind of like, and then you can't like, what can you do with it? Like once you know what the name of the song is, you can look it up and you can listen to it again and again until it's not stuck in your head anymore. Right. But if you don't, it's kind of something where you're like, oh, that's so weird. I'm going to just ignore it because I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to tell other people about the song because they don't know it. But I think when you have that shared language, it can be helpful. I think a better example is things like emotions, like languishing. If you've heard of that, it's kind of like, um, kind of, kind of like when you're burnt out, but they say it's on the scale of between flourishing and thriving and then being depressed. So you're not fully depressed, but you're not fully thriving or flourishing either. You're kind of just like somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think that article blew up because people like, Oh, there's a name for this. There's a word for what I'm experiencing and I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. And I think that's probably a better analogy for that. But I think there's a lot of power in being able to learn about it. Cause I think even when I was younger, they taught us like sex ed and stuff, right? But they didn't say you have reproductive autonomy. You get to decide what you want. Like you have rights, (laughs) just like how they say, you know, you have rights, you know, legally, you also have rights, you know, when you're in relationships or engaging with other people. And I think that would have been so helpful at such a young age to know about that. So it could have and start those conversations. But I also think that there is increasingly visibility, and I'll try to keep this short, about reproductive coercion in the media. And I know I actually talked to Maggie about this too, where um, there were a few shows that I watched where I totally identified like that was reproductive coercion. They, they didn't name it. They didn't provide resources. They didn't even have the characters in the show, like have a conversation about it. Like that person just experienced something. We witnessed it. And then we continued to move on. You know what I mean? And I was like, I think the visibility is important and that it can be really helpful to maybe start those conversations if people choose to, but I think it can also be a little dangerous if, uh, there isn't, if it's not kind of done in a way that has particular messaging, 
you know, because I think especially teenagers that watch shows, they look to media as representations of like what happens in the world, right? So if they never saw anything kind of reminiscent of reproductive coercion, maybe they would think it never happened. So I think in that case, it's a positive thing. Um, but two examples that I thought of, Ginny and Georgia, I don't know if either of you have watched that show on Netflix. Okay, so you might know, and this is a spoiler alert, Uh-oh, so if finish. you haven't watched it, yeah, you can <laughs> skip through, but um, the, one of the characters, Jenny, she loses her virginity, right, and this guy who she's having sex with, he doesn't pull out, doesn't have protection, they didn't have a conversation, they didn't even talk before this even happened, and then she's left to figure out, like, how to get plan b how to take it she's completely alone she doesn't tell anyone about it when she goes to the store to buy it she's told by the pharmacist that normally the guy is the one who buys the plan b and i don't know if we can give it to you and all this stuff and she doesn't tell anyone about it she doesn't talk to him about it until like much much later but i think that it's up to her too if she decides that that's reproductive coercion or not but to me she was looked very surprised like when it even happened because that was her first time. There was no conversation. And that how does someone have reproductive autonomy if the conditions weren't conducive to them even being able to know what was happening to them? You know what I mean? Like know what was happening to her body. Um, and then another example that I thought of was in Bridgerton. So another spoiler if you haven't seen it. But um, Simon, this guy who's a duke, he makes it clear that he has zero intentions of ever having children because he doesn't want to continue the heir because his dad was really horrible, etc. So then Daphne, the person, they've had sex before and they agreed on the pullout method, right? That was their agreed upon birth control method. And then Daphne really wants to have kids and she was convinced that the reason he he kept saying he couldn't have kids. So she thought that he had some kind of biological reason for why he couldn't reproduce, but it was actually just his own choice. So she wanted to test it. So the next time they had sex, she got on top of him while they're having sex and refused to move while he like finished inside of her against his will. And he was really upset. He didn't want to talk to her anymore, et cetera, all these things. And so they kind of just waited to see if she would get pregnant or not, if she would get her period or not, because this is back in olden days and time. So that was kind of like the indicator. But um, that those were like two examples. But again, in both of those shows, they didn't provide any resources. They didn't, no one talked about it. No one said, hey, that wasn't okay. Um, that's reproductive coercion, all of these other things. And so I think, I thought of those examples, but I think like more conversation needs to happen to continue that visibility. But I think it's also good that they're at least including it in some like mainstream media. Yes. Yeah. I I remember, I never watched Bridgerton, but I remember when that episode came out and I just happened to be on Twitter and it was all over Twitter. And a lot of people were actually saying like, Hey, did you see that scene? in the episode like that was sexual violence and a couple of people were saying yeah it was but also it was reproductive coercion and I was kind of Mm. blown away because when I first heard the term reproductive coercion which was probably like four years ago I don't think that you would have ever seen those conversations on Twitter and and it's disappointing that there were no resources provided after that and the you know, the show didn't talk about that or it wasn't mentioned, but at the same time, like you can kind of see that more people are aware of what this is and more people are talking about it. Mm 
also the fact that it was a, a man who was the victim in that situation. And people were still saying this is reproductive coercion. For me, I think that was really important. It is. I don't know if I just don't follow the right people. <laughs> I, I don't see these conversations happening on social media. And now I'm disappointed. Because, like, why not, you know? Um, so, yeah. I, I'm I'm gonna be stuck on that for a while. <laughs> um, but from you you all's perspective, why do you think? Like, I mean, I know it's happening. I like guess it's, it's a growing topic. It's a growing terminology. But like on a personal level, not so much like social media, but as far as like, for example, our parents or grandparents or just friends, family, whoever. Why do you think? just the conversation of reproductive whatever in general is such a tough conversation to have. I feel like that is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I think it's, I think just sex in general is a very, very taboo topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it, it differs from family to family. Some families are very open about it and they start talking with their children about that very early on. And others, that's just a topic that never comes up. And I also think there's something to be said about intimate relationships too. talking with family members about what's happening in your relationship. Like you, you talk to your family about like, you know, oh, I went with my partner to to see a movie, right? You're not going to talk with them about what you and your partner are doing beyond that. Um, and I, I just think for so long that it's so taboo. And I think having conversations about it is so important. Um, it is. I feel like that didn't answer the question, oh, it but did. it just, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think because reproductive autonomy is such a new concept that I think even our parents might not even know that they have it, you know? So I think like that is like the lack of education and awareness on a multi-generational level contributes to us not having the tools that we feel like we may need to even engage in like a meaningful conversation about reproductive coercion and reproductive autonomy. And I think what Maggie was saying is really important too, because there's an assumption that if you're in a relationship with someone, everything is consensual. Everything is healthy. Everything is perfect, right? And that there should be no problems. Otherwise, just leave the relationship. Like, I think that's a lot of people's perspective of they don't really want to sit there and kind of grapple or reconcile like, okay, but what if you do love this person, but they are being reproductively coercive, right? And they're trying to pressure you or do things that you don't want. And it's like, how do you talk to someone else about that? And the main response probably would be either you're overreacting or you need to come to a compromise or just appease that other person. Or another reaction might be just leave. And that's not always extremely helpful in those situations too. So I think the reason it's difficult is because there's so many societal expectations of what is okay and what is not okay to talk about. And I think it also depends on culture too and like different identities and and different cultures too of like what expectations are for specific genders, especially when they are in relationships. 
So I think the more that people have this awareness and hear about other people having conversations about it, the more likely it is that people will continue to, or maybe not even continue, right? Just initially engage in a conversation about that with people that they care about or just things and just people in general, um, as you would talk about who are you dating or whatever, um, kind of bringing that, that up in conversation too, if they feel comfortable with it. What you said about parents just made me think about, I think, you know, just culturally and socially, there's kind of this idea that like, once you reach a certain age, you just stop having sexual relationships, right? Like once you're above, I don't know, it's arbitrary, right? Like once you're in your sixties, like that's just not a part of your life anymore. And we know that that's not true. Um, People of all ages continue to have intimate relationships. And so I guess part of it is kind of like, well, why would someone talk about that with family who's too old to be having sex or too old to even know what I'm talking about? Um, And so I think for some families, that might be part of it as well. It's an interesting perspective. But it makes sense. Like I think it's just one of those things that you just kind of unconsciously think and just like let it let it go you know so yeah that's because I can't really imagine me trying to go to my grandmother about anything like because in my mind she's not having sex you know like yeah I yeah mm-hmm. um so since both of you are like in deep in this work um have you had these type of conversations with your parents or grandparents I would say for me that I have, particularly with my mom, and I think at the time, and I think at multiple different times in my life too, so I've I've always been lucky to have an open relationship with my mom where I feel like I can talk to her, like when I started having sex and being on birth control and all that stuff. Like, I know that's not the case for all families. I just want to acknowledge that right away too. But for me, I think that it has been really affirming and validating to be able to say to my mom, like, you know, oh, I've had experiences where I didn't feel like I had, like my body wasn't my own, right? Like I just had experiences where that person just decided what was happening and and I didn't feel like I had a say. I was too scared to speak up for myself. And then talking about, well, what are conditions or environments? Like what are your boundaries? Or like how can you practice saying no when you're in a situation that you don't want to be in? And I think a lot of like, cisgender women in particular, right, are socialized to, like, be a yes woman, right, or, like, I need to appease this person, or you're taught, like, it's a dangerous situation, like, something bad could happen if you don't, or even if it's not necessarily, um, like, physical violence is being threatened, there's other ways to create environments where you feel really scared, right, of, like, I don't know what this person's going to do if I say no. And I think that happens in relationships a lot, but it gets overlooked um, because people think that sexual violence only happens from a stranger. And we know statistically that that is not true. That's far from the truth. But for me, I think being able to talk about what makes me comfortable and 
I think the starting point sometimes is those violations and saying, like, have you ever been in a situation like that before? And then my mom being vulnerable and sharing things that she has experienced, too. And I would say it's a little harder for me with maybe like male identified people in my family where like the topic of that is just a little more awkward in general. But I still think that being able to talk about how do you feel respected in that way or what do you do if you feel like someone is is not respecting your boundaries or what you're saying. But as far as my grandparents, I honestly don't think that I have talked about reproductive autonomy or reproductive coercion with them in any way I think sometimes there's an overall messaging of like for my grandma especially that and she passed she passed away last year unfortunately but she would say things like um you know, like you are in control, like of your life. So I think, like she would, she would agree with the idea of reproductive autonomy, and that you know you have your own personal agency, and that no one should dictate that or take that away from you. But I think that it would be, um, it's just not as common, right? And and you kind of, I don't know. I I guess I'm thinking like, what is the barrier? Like, why haven't I? And I think it's just that somewhere along the way I've labeled like these are topics that I talk about with my family and these are topics that I don't talk about my family and it's kind of fallen under that category of like kind of refrain from getting into like the nitty-gritty of those things so that might be why yeah I would echo that that you know for me personally it feels like a topic that is just under that category if I don't talk about it with family but then I think back to it being in like elementary school or middle school and we had these books in our family that were called like what's happening to my body for girls and what's happening to my body for boys because I'm a triplet um and so I have a sister and a brother and so we would each read like our (laughs) respective book and our parents did like study lessons with them um because I remember the books had like discussion questions and so that was we hated it (laughs) because we were kids but (laughs) that was like my first introduction to topics like this. And so they started really early on, but like Brennison said, somewhere along the way, it kind of just, it moved from that category of like, okay, this is something to talk about and to learn about and into the category of this isn't something that I'm comfortable talking about. Um, And I think Brennison kind of touched on this, but I feel like now in my um, like late twenties, when the topic of, reproductive autonomy or sexual violence comes up it's it's always in relation to like my personal experiences with violations um you know it's not about like healthy experiences in relationships and and you never know like when I think about my parents like it's entirely possible that one or both of them had their own personal experiences with sexual violence and you just you just don't know um because it's so prevalent but I do think it's interesting that some of these topics, sometimes they start out being something that you're very open and honest about, and then life happens, and suddenly years later, that's just gone. Thank you both for sharing. Um, I think my... So since at this point, listeners have a pretty good idea of what the terminology means, um, and with that being said, would or do you have maybe some type of advice to give them 
um, for whether they may have not experienced it yet and it might come up in the future or they might be in a situation where they are experiencing it. Like, would you have some type of um, words to share? Yeah, and I would add like one more example to that too of not only if you yourself have experienced it or if you are just want to have your own back just in case you do in the future, but I think also for other people right. too, right? Like if one of your friends or a family member comes to you and again, doesn't have the words for it, but describes what had happened, being able to figure out how to respond to that in an empathetic way is really important, I think as well. And so I would say that if you are someone who has experienced it and you're listening to this podcast and you're saying, oh, wow, like I'm kind of in some psychological distress because I knew that something was wrong. And now this affirmed that something was really wrong and I need support. If that is what's going on in your head right now, I would definitely recommend, um, honestly, like professional mental health. Like I think that's really stigmatized as well too, but I think therapists can be a great resource of creating that space to process what happened and to process like acknowledging what happened, acknowledging the impact that it had on you and maybe that it had on your relationships afterward without you even knowing it. And then how are you going to move forward? How can you reclaim your reproductive autonomy after having experienced something like that? I think that therapists can be a great resource for that. But there's also like domestic violence agencies, advocates and things like that that can help too. I think like the hotline.org is a great place to start because it's a national um, resource that can connect you to other places like in your state. But if you are just looking to engage in these conversations more, I would say shameless plug for women's advocates webinars. Um, if you go to our YouTube channel, you can find the exact one that Chris went to and have that. You can watch it with a friend or like download the PowerPoint and just kind of like show someone a slide. You know, people share things that like posts on social media all the time of like, oh my gosh, I didn't have words for this. And this describes like what I have experienced a lot and I want to talk to you about it. So I think that that can be a way to do it too, of like even sharing a specific resource. If you feel like you still don't have the language yourself to talk about it, you can definitely utilize other people who have and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Like, have you ever experienced anything like this? Or like, what's important to you to feel safe when you're having sex with someone? Like anything like that. Um, I think like for me, if I'm ever curious about something, I try to just make it be like a really genuine and like honest question of like trying to connect with that other person. Um, and of course, trying to be considerate of like not being invasive, of course, of like, tell me a time where you were coerced into doing something that impacted your reproductive health in a bad way. Like, no, that's definitely not what I'm like encouraging. But I think being able to just say like, um, what, like I've been saying this whole time, like what, ha what helps you feel safe or like what makes you feel like you actually have a choice and decision over what happens to you in this capacity or in this context. Um, but I also think being able to talk to like current people that you might, like a current person you might be dating um, about your previous experiences and about like what their experiences have been as well too. I think that that can be another um, like step in it being able to open up that conversation. Um. I'm forgetting what the question was as I'm kind of getting lost. 
in what I'm saying. Are you say I were you asking about next steps or like recommendations um, for like normalizing talking about these topics? In so many words, I asked about advice that you would share. Um, so you know, that kind of all what you just said kind of goes hand in hand. So yeah. Yeah, I think uh, what Brennison mentioned about um, there are support services available for you. That's just really important to know. Um, You don't have to be experiencing physical violence or be in an active crisis or fear for your life to seek out support from a domestic or sexual violence agency. Um, And a lot of them offer support groups, which are, you know, really great services for people who um, might want to be in kind of that group setting and receive that support from other people who've gone through similar things. So I think just knowing that um, help is available, and like Brennison mentioned, the hotline is a great resource, women's advocates. Um, Violence Free Minnesota has a directory on our website of domestic violence programs in Minnesota. Um, But the other piece of, of advice that I would mention would be if you're in a situation where Um, You know, if it's totally consensual, this person has never made you feel uncomfortable, uh, there's no coercion or anything, but if you still, for whatever reason, just decide, I don't want to do this, you don't have to go through with it. Um, You know, you can walk away at that point. You can say, I'm sorry, I changed my mind. And just keeping that in mind as well, um, that barring any coercion or any abuse, you don't have to make yourself do something that you don't want to do. Um, And then also kind of on the flip side, if you're in a relationship, uh, whether it's sexual or romantic, and your partner tells you, you know, hey, you did something that made me feel uncomfortable sexually or um, boundary wise, just being open to that and not being defensive. Um, If someone tells you that you made them uncomfortable, it's not your place to say, I didn't make you uncomfortable, right? Because that was their experience. And so um, we talk a lot about if you're someone experiencing reproductive coercion or your boundaries are crossed. But at the same time, I think it's important if to listen to what your partner is saying and make sure that you're respecting that and that you're open to that. I would just add one last thing too. In that kind of same vein, if you are looking for kind of like next steps to explore this further, I would, if you're someone who likes to journal or even just kind of write things down, whether it's like in your notes app, I feel like the notes app in my phone knows all my secrets, but um, it could also just be on a piece of paper or whatever you think is best to communicate and just brainstorm and write down what are my boundaries. Like, I think even just having that space to give yourself the awareness of like, what boundaries do I have? And if you realize I have none, you might say, okay, wait a second. <laughs> like, what? why is that? Have I felt like I've never been safe to have boundaries or what would they be? Or you could also kind of brainstorm what reproductive autonomy means to you. So you can kind of replay us talking about that at the beginning of this, this, I almost said webinar. I'm so used to talking about webinars at the beginning of this podcast. And just think about what, what your version of reproductive autonomy means to you. And that can be something that you share with your friends or with the people that you're dating. And so I think that that's a way to start talking about it too and normalizing it, that these are things that are good to talk about and that they're helpful in being able to have these close, healthy and authentic and respectful 
relationships with each other. It's all a part of that. I think I've been seeing like a big boom and like, oh, what does it mean to be like healthy and be empathetic and be vulnerable? Like that's being embraced a little bit more. And I think that these conversations are 100% a part of that. Yes, that was well said for both of you. I definitely am taking mental notes for myself and just for people, you know, I love and care about. Um, So as we bring this episode to a close, I have a question that I ask all of my guests before we, before I let you go. And that is, what are you currently growing through? That's a great question. I would say for me, um, I'm planning to go to graduate school in the fall. And that was like a huge, huge decision for me. I'm not good with adjustment or change, like at all. And, but I decided to go to school in Michigan. And obviously, it's still the Midwest, right? But it's, I'm moving completely by myself, you know, 10 hours away, and starting school and working at the same time after taking four years off from college. So it, it was something that was like really out of my comfort zone. And, but I, I really thought that it was important to do it. And so I think for me, that's something that I'm both really anxious about, but really excited about. And it's something that I, I know is necessary. And Brennison and I have talked about grad school a lot. She read like all my essays, provided feedback on all of them. So she was a really integral part of that. Um, but that's something that I've kind of, I'm currently just kind of like working through um, and looking forward to. Yes. Well, congratulations for one. And good luck. Thank I you. wish you the best. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm so excited for Maggie. <laughs> uh, I would say I'm also on a similar track of next year I want to start grad school. And I think what I'm growing through now is in between that time between now and next fall, I want to shed a few layers of my skin in terms of my worth as my productivity. Like I want to completely not feel that way because I think if I continue to go into pursue my PhD with the mindset that I need to be working constantly and that I am worthless if I'm not, I think that will be really detrimental and hard for me. So I think I'm trying to grow through this stage in my life where I'm honoring all the decisions and like the ways that I have been resilient, right? And have coped through different things and then also letting them go and acknowledging that they served a purpose at that time and they were really helpful then, but they're not serving me anymore. And then letting those go and allowing other things to kind of fall into place, whether that's self-compassion, mostly, I think it's just being kinder to myself through that process as well. And honoring, you know, just allowing myself to just be instead of, you know, being a human being versus a human doing, right? Just allowing that to kind of lean into that moment, I think is where I'm at in my life for sure. And that's a constant, there's growing pains that come with doing things differently, right? Um, you know, I think, well, first of all, thank you all for sharing. I love both of you all's responses. Um, I don't usually share, but I feel the need to this time because my answer is kind of similar. Well, to an extent to both of you all's uh, growing situations, I too, had planned on going back to school in the fall 
And I only applied to one program and I did not get accepted. And I found out at the beginning of this month. So I am currently growing through um, just a space of not really being sure or just accepting the timing. Like maybe it just wasn't my time. Maybe it wasn't the right program. You know, maybe there's something else I'm supposed to be doing in this time period. Um, Just like embracing the uncomfortableness of the no that was given to me. Um, So, yeah, I think that's the summary of what I'm currently growing through. And yeah, thank you for sharing. No problem. And possibly like accepting that there is another opportunity for me to do it again. You know, like I don't, it's not the end of the world. I can apply next time, you know, to another program. So, yeah. Yeah. I think just reminding ourselves that we're so young and we have so much time ahead of us. We have all the time in the world to do whatever we want to do. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you all again for agreeing to be a part of the episode. I truly appreciate it. Um, And if you don't have anything else for me, wait, wait, wait. Tell everyone where they can reach you. I always almost forget. Yeah, so, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Maggie. Sorry, Madison. Uh, For Violence Free Minnesota, you can go to our website, which is V as in vegetable, FM mn.org so it's the initials for violence free minnesota um and we have a bunch of resources on there and um, like i said a directory of domestic violence programs and then if you google persephone's daughter's journal you'll find my uh literary and arts journal for abuse survivors um and can check that out and for women's advocates, you can, if you're interested in a webinar like the one Chris went to, you can go to www.wadvocates with an s.org forward slash events. And you can also put our crisis line in your phone and a contact if that is safe for you to do so. And if you want to in general, it's 651-227-8284. So I'll say it one more time. 651-227-8284. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel with all of our webinar recordings. And hope to have you at a future event if you'd like to to be there. Yes. Well, like I was saying, thank you all again. Um, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, it definitely brought taught me a lot and it brought a lot of I'm pretty sure it'll bring a lot of awareness to women who may need it and they didn't know they needed it and men too and men too I apologize (laughs) and non-binary individuals yeah right absolutely thank you for tuning in to this episode of what are you growing through it is greatly appreciated Please make sure you subscribe to this podcast series so you can get that lovely notification every Wednesday morning. Also, do me the favor of sharing this with a friend or leaving me a review. I thank you in advance. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram at thebloggergrove underscore underscore. Also, more of my work can be found on my website, www.dbloggofgrowth.com. Your support is always, and I do mean always, appreciated.